Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady. And for today's guest, we have Randy Perkins. Randy has been a member of the community for decades, and he has ridden motorcycles and driven land cruisers on many continents of the planet. Randy's a very interesting guest because he has a very storied past. He started off his life as a Marine and then made a career out of being a logger in New Zealand and in the Pacific Northwest. And he is a passionate overlander. Uh, He has a lot of experience as a motorcyclist. And more recently, he's been traveling extensively by land cruiser in Australia and in Africa. So we gleaned some really important insights about buying a vehicle in country, keeping a vehicle, storing it in country, uh, maintaining documentation and registration. So these are very interesting questions that we're able to dig into with Randy about how he's able to keep these vehicles on various continents of the planet. So please enjoy my conversation with Randy Perkins. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. Randy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You're welcome, Scott. It's it's a joy to have you here. It's humbling, and I feel blessed to be here. We just got done with a nice little adventure together. So we drove drove out to Alamo Lake. We had a great little trail ride. We had had Matt Scott was there, Paula, the producer, Ryan, our videographer. We had had Caleb along as well. We had a, a great little little trip. And for me, it was the first time that I've just done a trail ride in forever. So thanks for being the impetus for us getting out and doing that. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, your story is so, it's not only fascinating, but it's got so many wonderful arcs and turns and people that have come into your life. And you've, you've become a student of these people that you admire in many ways, you are someone that I admire and others like Caleb and many people that I know in my life admire you for the difference that you've made in people's lives. And I thought it would be, it would be good for us to start kind of from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Gladstone, Oregon until I was seven, uh, living next to the uh, library. Okay. And when I was seven, my dad bought 28 acres south of Oregon City, about, 10, about three miles. And it backed up to 650 acres of timber and yeah. four whole growth forest. So I went from a city kid to having- You were uh, Huck Finn. <laughs> yeah, I had 28 acres of filberts to take care of. And then the rest of the time I was in the woods camping or doing something from nine years old on. So yeah. exploring. And, and I remember in our conversation recently, you talked about Huck Finn being yeah. an early inspiration for you about yeah. wonder and adventure and exploration. My second grade teacher read Huckleberry Finn to us. 
And then my third grade teacher gave me the softer side of my life when she read a book called Where the Red Fern Grows to Us. And that book changed how I look at humanity yeah. and people. What do you feel you took away from that? How did, how did you change the way that you saw people after that book? I realized that not everybody in our life comes from the same circumstances we do. And everybody has their own challenges. And I understood a lot about the dirt poor poverty that my dad that was born on the Indian Reservation in the Northwest Territories, it was Cherokee, it was three-quarter Cherokee. And then my grandfather who lost his farm in 29 in Iowa and the dirt later on in life, I understood that about the dirt poverty that those people lived in and had yeah. nothing, nothing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that seems like that that has served you because it's it's allowed you to always remain rooted in the fact that things life can change so quickly. It does too. Yeah. Yeah. And then- as a young man, you joined the military. So talk a little bit about your military career. Well, when I was uh, 17, I dropped out of school and they later figured out I was dyslexic. I couldn't attend school from about the age 13 on. And so my best friend, his dad was a colonel in the Oregon National Guard. And I went down to talk to him and he said, you're not going in the National Guard. He said, you'll end up in jail. There's no discipline. You need discipline. So he referred me to the Marine recruiter. And the funny yeah, that, thing was- That's a way to line up for discipline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The funny thing was, is that the night before my best friend who I grew up with and went in the Marine Corps with and Jim started the Antler Chandelier Company in Montana, he was at dinner that night with my family and, and Jim said, Mr. Perkins, I am going in the Marine Corps. And dad said that that is the greatest thing that any man could do. Hmm. And I heard that. And the next day I had the Sergeant Roberts out with me to get my parents to sign a waiver at 17 so I could go in. Wow. Just that, after my 17th birthday. So yeah. similar to my, my grandfather. In fact, I think he was a little bit younger than that. In fact, I think his mom mm -hmm. fibbed a bit on his, which that happened a lot for World War II. Yeah, you know? it did. Yeah. And talk up to me a little bit about what you did in the Marines. Well, I went to, uh, of course, everybody goes to boot camp and advanced infantry, but I went back to Memphis to go to aviation school to be a flight mechanic. And um, while I was there, I got snagged up to play football for a season for them. And the, the funny thing about the Memphis story is, is that I got off the plane August 16th, 1977, the morning Elvis died and oh, I'm wow. in the Memphis airport. Oh, wow. And the story, you know, they're all screaming, the king is dead, the king is dead. And I, I thought to myself, Jesus came back and they <laughs> killed him while I was on the airplane. <laughs> but the, the military there, yeah, I spent almost a year going to school, went to airborne radio operator school also on the C-130s. But when I got ready to get out, I'd finished number one in my school. And they offered me HMX-1 duty, which was Marine Corps Presidential Helicopter Squadron, and it's on my discharge papers. And I said, no, I want to go out and be a Disneyland Marine and live in Tustin. Yeah, I sure. didn't want to go live on the East Coast, so sure. closer to family. But And I ended up spending two and a half years out there and then quite a few times on the Tarawa down off of uh, the coast of Central America when during the- Yeah, there was a lot happening that Yeah, time. that was the arms for- Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thank you for your service. I, I think that we both share the recognition that our lives would have taken a very different path had it not been serving in the military. I know for me, I felt like a, like a ship with a lot of potential, but no rudder. And the military gave me a lot of that direction. So yeah, that uh, I would never have gotten where I have in my life without the discipline I learned because I was an undisciplined punk. Yeah. And I, I was the exact same thing. Yeah. 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 It, but yeah. I'm still a punk and probably yeah. not as disciplined as I want to be, but yeah. <laughs> but it would have been much worse. Yeah, I, I get that. So you get out of the Marines and you start getting involved with T 
timber. But the thing that's so cool about your career story is that you didn't just do logging in the Pacific Northwest like everybody else did. You decided to go to New Zealand. So was that the first time that you really traveled internationally, not as a soldier? Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, and how old were you when you, I was 20, 28 years old Okay, when I sold my businesses, I sold my tree farm and I was recruited by the New Zealand government. There was an article in American Timberman, which at the time was the biggest newspaper about logging. And if you're from the Northwest, you're a God in the timber industry because we log bigger timber, steeper ground, more production anybody in the world. And I was recruited by the New Zealand government because of that article. But um, to back up a little bit, the biggest defining moment in my life was the day I got out of the Marine Corps. My dad picked me up at the mm-hmm. airport and mom wasn't there and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then he stopped out on the Columbia River and he told me he was terminal with lung cancer and didn't have long to live. And it's like, why didn't you tell me? And it's, you know, so it kind of threw me in a dark hole. Yeah. But uh, there was no work at that point. We were coming out of four years of Carter. I, I went into the Marine Corps about a two weeks before Carter started. And I got out about two weeks before Reagan. So we were down to no supplies, nothing to run the birds on. We cannibalized, 80% of the birds were cannibalized so we could keep flying. So I started a firewood company. My dad, when I got home, he said, well, I've got two truckloads of logs out there. If you'll cut them up, you can have half. And I figured out at that point, I was making about 15 bucks an hour. So it's good money in 1980. Yeah, I was getting $1.65 in yeah. a regular job. And, and so I started doing that and it kept getting bigger and bigger. And then I was buying logs from an old man, Raymond Smith, out in Corbett, Oregon. And one day he said to me, he said, uh, how'd you like to own your own property? And I said, well, I really don't have much money. And he goes, well, I've got a 40-acre track out there. I'll sell you. And it was covered in alder at the time. It was kind of worthless other than firewood. And so he took a chance on me. And uh, I ended up buying a small bulldozer, putting a winch on it, building my own blade, building my own canopy fort. And I ended up logging my property. And then the neighbors wanted me to log. And I took that fence down. Then I took the next fence down. And for the next year and a half, I just logged for my neighbors. And then uh, another man grabbed me and saw the potential I had and took me into the National Force and taught me how to log big timber. man by the name of John Sari. He's yeah, my mentor. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, losing a parent, and that was many years ago for you with your dad and just a year ago for me with my mom. But yeah. it really does recalibrate things in our mind. What, what did you feel changed about you after you lost your dad? Well, after I lost my dad, I went downhill into drug addiction, drug addiction and alcoholism. I mean, I went downhill, downhill fast. It, it lasted about three years past that point. I'd had some stuff happening in my life when I was 12, some abuse issues. And I started pretty much drinking every day at that point. And the only sober time I ever had in my life was the 98 days of Marine Corps boot camp until yeah. I was 25 years old when I had a friend pull me aside and help me. But you know, it's we get people step into our lives and we can't forget that, that people step up to help us. Yeah. And we have to remember that we have to do that. We don't have to. We get to do that for other people in our lives. Mm-hmm. We get to step forward and help other people. At 25, uh, my 25th birthday, I tried to quit drinking. And I kept waking up every morning drunk. And I went into, uh, I was working for the power company at night as a mechanic, heavy equipment mechanic. And one of the guys that I worked with had been gone for 30 days. Everybody said he, just, he was up at Borgman at the coal plant. was the common story in 1984. And, and Bill was there and I didn't even recognize him. And it was... It was Labor Day weekend, and I'd been on a four-day cocaine run, and I hadn't slept for four days. And I was in the—we had a room we called the drying room, which was 110 degrees with no humidity. We could dry our clothes in, and I was sitting in there just shaking and sweating, and Bill came in, and he said, are you ready to get some help? And I said, I've been trying, but I can't stop. And he took me up and got me into an outpatient program. Hmm. And many times in my life, I thought, 
where can I be a bill in someone else's life to help them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been blessed to have those opportunities. I don't take any credit for anybody else, but I've been blessed to have those opportunities to help other people. And you've been sober now for how long? 38 and a half years now. Well, and that takes, it takes an incredible amount of courage to first of all, admit when we have something that we want to change in our life. Yeah. And then second of all, to stick with it. Yeah. So 38 years is incredible. Well, thank you, Randy. Scott. I'm just so proud of you for that. Thank you. Um, and we'll talk a little bit later about some other things that we've been both been working on to yeah. help each other with yeah. in our lives. And you make a decision to to actually care for yourself, to, yeah. to show yourself some of the love that you really you, yeah. that you wanted to yeah. receive, protect yourself yeah. and save yourself in many ways. And how did that change your life? What what happened at, at that point that started to give you these opportunities? Well, I think, I think when I was 25 and I got sober, the biggest thing I learned in my life is I wasn't lying all the time to everybody Yeah, because addiction is just one set of lies after another. The gentleman I sat down next to at my first meeting, Terry Stegge, he was my sponsor for 25 years. He sat down that night. I sat down next to him that night, not knowing who he was. And he'd been sober about 15 years. He had an a PhD in literature from the University of Oregon, and, and he ran a garbage company. <laughs> he stayed in college as long as he could before he had to go run his dad's garbage company. And, you know, he used to tell me, you know, that you just, everybody's going to get one chance. You're going to get a chance. There's going to be people walk into your lives and um, you've got that chance to, to maybe change your life. The sad thing about alcoholism and drug addiction is even if all the people that say they want to do it, maybe only about 10% ever make it. Yeah. And that's the sad thing. And then when you get to one year, there's a, a, I don't know, it's a, it's a trend and it's, it's been this way since I got sober, but when people get to one year of sobriety, they forget about what they got doing to get there and they quit doing it. So about 13 to 14 months, people relapse all the time. Yeah, sure. I luckily I was, no, I got sober with some really old hardcore people yeah. and, and I needed that because I had, didn't have that discipline sure. to be able to thrive and survive. We're all glad that you did survive. <laughs> yeah. There's, we have a lot of mutual friends that are yeah. grateful that you're here. Yeah. And, and I, I have no doubt that that decision made a big part of it. Yeah. Well, there was, there were seven of us that ran together. I got sober at 25. My friend Steve got sober at 30 and nobody else made it to 40 years old between yeah. car wrecks and cirrhosis. And then, and then I lost Steve a couple of years ago when he was 25 years sober to, they think it was the cancer that's caused by Roundup because he yeah. was he ran a cemetery. And yeah. so it was some weird cancer they'd never seen before. But the amount of people that, you know, pass through our lives that even if they don't get sober the first time, if you can make an impact on them. You know, everybody used to always ask me when I before I moved to Bend, Oregon, where my ranch is at, I lived in Corvallis, Oregon, which was a college town. And everybody always said, well, why do you have dinner at the same pub every night? Well, one, yeah. the head chef, Co. I took him to Columbia with me. Because he wanted to go ride motorcycles in Columbia. So I took him down there and we rode motorcycles for 35 days. And so he'd make me whatever I wanted. But what <laughs> I, when I sit back and look at it, I always tell people, you know, if I had seven people come up to me and say, how are you so happy in life and how do you do it without drinking? Yeah. And five of those people are still sober. So, you know, occasionally people are put in our lives and, and most of the time, everything we've ever wanted and needed in our lives, what I find out is a lot of times we don't take it because it doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like. Mm. We have a preset notion of who this person should be. Yeah. Including ourselves. And ourselves. And we're not yeah. that person and they're yeah. not that person. So we don't take what's given to us at that point. Yeah. Being willing to accept help and being yeah. willing to accept change. You know, I'm, I'm feeling compelled right now because there's, there's likely going to be some people listening that need help. Yeah. Um, would you be willing to have them reach a out to you? Absolutely. All right. Now, absolutely. How, how would they reach you? On Instagram, I'm PVT Mule. 
nickname I got in the Marine Corps. My phone number is 503-780-3828. If I don't answer, just leave me a message and I'll get right back with you. Um, I still speak on a state level for Alcoholics Anonymous. I, yeah, I know you do that. Yeah. And I'd, for years, I spoke on a national level for Cocaine Anonymous. I was one of the founders in the Northwest of that to get that started so kids could talk about drug addiction with the firmness of Alcoholics Anonymous, where NA tends to be kind of spread out. The, I don't mean this wrong, but to them, relapse is acceptable. And to me, it's acceptable, but every time it happens, it's that much harder for people to get there and stay there. And you never have to leave is the thing. And no, it, and it doesn't matter where you're at. I have friends all over the United States that are good people that have 20, 25 years of sobriety that can help you. I know you do. And yeah. you might be able to put them in touch with that. So yeah. I know that it's something that people struggle with and um, there is help and there's yeah. people that care about you making those steps yeah. towards sobriety. And yeah, I'm just proud of you. Well, Randy. thank you, Scott. So. I appreciate it. It's it's nothing that I'm proud of or ashamed of. It, yeah. It's just my life story. It's who I am. And and if if I was proud or ashamed, I would be silent. And if I'm silent, people die because of our silence. Yeah. Um, they just don't. Uh, I've led an unbelievably blessed life. And I've tackled some major issues in life, really tough ones. And uh, went down those rabbit holes a few times really badly. And then, you know, had somebody step in and say, hey, Randy, you know, you did it with me at the beginning of the year, but step in and say, hey, I'm tired of seeing you struggle with something. Here's, yeah. here's what I think might help you. I think to myself all the time, where can I be a Bill Quimby or where can I be a Terry Aggie in someone else's life? Not only in recovery, but in business, because I've got eight or 10 guys that used to work for me. I downsized in 2009, 2007, I downsized. And all the guys that had been with me for quite a while, I took a risk on them and I sold them logging equipment on contract because sure. they couldn't get financing at a bank to buy it. So sure. I, I sold it to them. And then by the grace of God, those guys are still guys that come back. Now that I've decided I'm going to work five, six months out of the year, they still come back and help me. Yeah, they sure. bring their machinery back and I contract them in and we get to work together. And That's right. I mean, last, last week we were on a job and we had four of us there and we had 125, 145 years of experience and we had <laughs> 85 years we were together. I was sitting there watching, you know, my log trucker is junior. His dad is senior and his dad started hauling logs for me in 1981 and junior's been hauling for me since 96, you know, and, but we're, we're who we surround ourselves with. Yeah. Know? That is something that I recognize and I've heard it said is that we're basically a, a reflection of the five people that we're closest with. Yeah. So if, if we're surrounding ourselves with amazing people and you think about the people in your life, like Bill Dragoo and Bill Whitaker and these gentlemen that are, are absolutely exceptional yeah. individuals, and it helps to make us exceptional yeah. individuals in the ways that we can be. So we don't know those moments in life are going to happen. They're never staged. We never get that feeling. My whole relationship with overlanding changed in 2012 when I went to my first overland expo. I'm standing in line as a lonely person and Bill Dragoo and his wife, Susan, and another family, friends of theirs from Oklahoma were there. And the lady said, I got a room for five. Bill said, we're five. And we sat down and Bill said, do you ride motorcycles? I said, yeah, I just got back from my 1200 and I've been down the Baja three or four times in the last year. And he goes, Tell me how you ride the Baja. I had no idea who the guy was. Yeah, one of the yeah one of the greatest <laughs> adventure motorcycle instructors in the country. Yeah, and yeah. I and I had that. That's his humility. Yeah, and then you know the next day he introduced me to you, and then he introduced me to Bill Whitaker, and he didn't yep. tell me what Bill Whitaker did, and Bill's drilling me about XL timber in Oregon <laughs> about what I see as their flaws. And I finally asked him, who the hell are you? And he says, I'm a chairman of Simplot, and it's like, Shh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's it's those relationships with my first riding coach, Ramy Stroud. A week after I bought my first 800, a friend of mine that rides, I mean, I bought my first 1200, a friend of mine that I rode dirt bikes with said, 
you're either going to get some training or you're going to get hurt really bad. And then if you get on the bike, you're going to get some training. I said, who the hell do I get training from for this? And he said, well, Ramy Stroud in, in Sia, Oregon. And I was logging the piece next door to his property. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so, so you could, you could log for part of the day and then go ride your bike. Yeah. I went rode every night. Yeah. And, <laughs> That's uh, great. you know, two weeks into it, Ramy goes, what are you doing next week? And I said, nothing. He said, can you take two weeks off? I said, yeah. And he said, well, bring your bike over. I said, why? He said, we're going to this place called Copper Canyon. I was hoping you'd talk about this story because this is incredible. Yeah. So you, you'd never, other than Baja, you'd never really done a big international trip. And now you're going to take two weeks. I hadn't even done Baja at that point. Oh, this gotcha. was 2008. This oh, was, gotcha. I bought my bike in May and he took me in June. <laughs> That's amazing. So you're, so you're, uh, where did they ship the bikes to? To Creel? Or no, did- no. He shipped it to uh, El Paso. I put it in his trailer it. and he took it down Got with it. Skip Man. Man. Curso, Curso oh, from yeah. Moto Discovery. Yeah, nice. And still great friends with Skip. And I had the opportunity to help his son when his son was having some problems. Yeah, Skip that's called right. me in the middle of the night and it was really touching. But we got to we got there and then uh, my first crossing was at um, Juarez. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get the party started. <laughs> yeah, get the party started. It was right. Yeah. But isn't that, that is such an interesting area when you drive, like once you're out of Juarez and you're, and you're heading south, you come into these Mennonite regions of yeah. Mexico that nobody knows about. Yeah. And there, there's, there's kids wearing John Deere ball caps yeah. and, you know, these, and these huge farming operations. Yeah. It's incredible. The agriculture in that area. Two things struck me when I, first time I crossed that border was one, when we got about 15 miles South out to the East, there's a mountain. Yeah. And there's an outline of a horse for heroin <laughs> that the drug dealers had put there. And this thing's like 500 feet high and a oh, thousand wow. feet long. But then uh, the funny thing is, is in the last 10 years in Mexico, they've changed from John Deere to Juan Deere. So you can get a Juan Deere hat down there now. (laughs) That's funny. But yeah, going down there and then, you know, experiencing Creole and then, you know. And and people, I don't think a lot of people realize that a town like that exists. It's kind of like the... I mean, I don't know the the Durango of Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's it's a high mountain. I think it's seven thousand feet yeah. or so. Yeah, and you know, so it's up in the pine trees. It's you know, there's log cabins everywhere, yeah. and it's just it's the gateway to Copper Canyon. Yeah, isn't that where the train starts? Too? Yeah, yeah. It, well, it starts. It would be north and west about 30 miles from Creole. Got it. Because you come in on the road and you have to go a little bit east to get to Creole. Well, it's out north and west at the head of the canyon there. Yeah. But the uh, Ramey knew a guy that was a French chef that had this little hotel. And so we're about halfway there. I can't remember the name of the city, but he pulled in there. And this guy cooked us the most amazing meal I've ever had in my life. <laughs> he asked a steak or chicken. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be the you know, the rubber, the chicken, rubber yeah. chicken tour. And he comes out and he's a French chef and this stuff has got sauce. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. He had a swimming pool there. It's like, do we have to leave, Ramey? <laughs> oh, you got to go back there. Yeah. So you get to Creole and I mean, riding an adventure, a big adventure motorcycle in Copper Canyon is no joke. No, and it wasn't paved. No, it was paved and yeah. it was... Yeah, it is paved down to Batapilas, or at least part of the way. Yeah. But at the time, and and, and it was funny because you and I were just talking about this before we started the conversation, and I was in the same area in 2008. We got to figure out what time I was there because it was probably close to the same time. Well, I'll, I'll look at my pictures because yeah. I still have pictures that are time. If you saw a whole bunch of sports mobiles, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> it was me. But yeah, I mean, uh, that is an incredible adventure. And you guys got into this one section of the trail. I mean, how many guys ended up injured well, by the time after, you got after, to the bottom? After we came out of Baldapitas, when we dropped into Baldapitas, uh, Ramey asked me to kind of stay back because uh, uh, there was a lady, Danielle and Art from um, San Diego, 
And Danielle was riding. She wasn't really experienced. And she wrecked her bike on the first corner where the right at the top of the hill where you yeah, start yeah. down, where the sure. missionary stands up there and blesses you. And uh, Ramey said, okay, um, Randy, he wanted, me to, he wanted me to stay, help him load the bikes because he's in a wheelchair. And so I went to load the bike and the key was in, not there to unlock the, the ramp. So he says, Randy, you got to go to the bottom. And so my first trip to the bottom of Copper Canyon was alone. <laughs> and he said, give me one piece of advice. Stay out of the inside of the corners yes. because the trucks tear them up so bad. That's right. And I got to the bottom and I talked to Scott, the assistant ride leader. And he said, well, I'm taking these people into Bald Pitas. He said, you're going to have to ride that key back up there. And it was not 80 on the rim and it was probably 110 in the bottom. And I got back up and Ramey, I loaded the bike and Ramey said, I'll follow you down. And I said, no, no, just go. I said, you know, I'll, I'm going to wait here about 10 minutes and uh, and drink some water. I think I drank three quarts of water because I was just dying. Yeah. And Ramey left and I was laying against the, the cliff on the left side. And then there's that area, there's that little shrine up there. Yeah. And all of a sudden I see movement and shadows and there's a shaman up there blessing me. Wow. And he's, he's blessing me. And then he goes like was this. He, was he Tara Hamaran, sick shaman? Yeah. Oh, incredible. Yeah, and then, wow. then he holds his hand out, and I got in my wallet, and I laid a five and put a rock on top of it, and he goes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you the wave, yeah. but the ride to the bottom was, um, it was quite emotional because I'd lost my business partner two years before, and that was one of the places we'd agreed I'd spread his ashes at. So right. I did on the bridge that morning and that evening before he got into Baltapitas. Coming out of Baltapitas, we got back up to Creole two days later, and there was a group of us that kind of rebelled because a lot of the people wanted to ride pavement back. I said, I didn't come here to ride pavement. So yeah. there were six of us that left and we went straight east out of Creel, past the garbage dump. And then over the top of the, there was a- Were you going to Saracawi or were you going to Divisadero or what was we your going to? I don't know the name, but eventually we were going to go over the, you know, you go out there and it, you go from 7,000 to about 9,000. It's forced it. That's right. And you're going straight east and then it goes east and then it drops and goes north up to, to Chihuahua. It was on that section. We- my famous last words were, there's a road there. It says two-wheel drive. We can go. Yeah. And well, we went down and that road was so steep that even a guy on a 450 that was a really good rider couldn't make it back up it. So we were stuck with going forward. And that day should have been about a six-hour day. It turned into a 34-hour day. And it sounds like you were on the route to Saracawi. Yeah. Some big, big river crossings. Too. Yes. Yeah. The bridges washed out at the bottom. That was the first thing we realized we're in trouble. But, you know, what are you going to do out there? You know, we had- uh, You got to keep moving. We had two guys get hurt. Uh, my friend Kim wrenched his ankle real bad. And my friend John tore his knee up real bad. They couldn't ride. So the bikes were in the back of the truck. And, and then uh, you ended up with someone with a broken shoulder too, right? Yeah. And then I ended up with a dislocated ankle later in the ride. <laughs> yeah. And, and explain to me, how, how was it that you were shifting again after you dislocated that foot? Because you said you couldn't feel the foot anymore. Well, they, yeah, I couldn't feel anything from the knee down. And they decided since I was the only one at the time that had an HID light and we were going to have to ride through the night that I had to ride because we were out of riders. We had no place to put bikes. And sure. I, I could physically still ride. Well, I took like seven or eight Vicodin yeah. to get it to quit throbbing, but they put tie wraps around my leg. And then they put a loop in the tie wrap so I could pick my heel up. Oh, okay. And then they tied a shift string from the shifter up to my tank bag <laughs> so I could shift and then downshift. Wow. And I remember we, we got to the top of that big canyon out there. There was that little town out there heading towards Chihuahua about halfway up. And we got to the top of the ridge and the guy that was in front of me, he stopped. It was still daylight. And I got to the top of the ridge and I said, what are you stopping for? And he goes, well, look at this. This is kind of cool. There's a, like a dirt road that goes up this way and then down here and there's a ramp. And I'm going to get the hell out of here. This is a landing graph, landing strip. And you can yeah. still see, it was windy and you could still see the track marks in the oh, dirt. Yeah. So they just built it. 
Yeah. I said, if anybody asked you if you saw anything, you didn't see anything. That's right. Nothing, because it was still really unregulated there. I remember coming around the corner one time, and here's two locals, and they have these huge backpacks on their back, you know, yeah. stuffed with weed, and they're both carrying rifles. Yeah. And all I, I didn't know what to do, so I literally just smiled and waved like a tourist. Yeah, I going. didn't know what to do. Yeah. I just kept driving, and I smiled and waved. And he actually gave me just a little curl of a smile yeah. as I went by. And it was like, that was... All it, I mean, he gave me a gift because I would have been terrified. Are they going to call yeah. ahead or yeah. what? You yeah. know, but he he kind of acknowledged me that like I'd mean you no harm, man. I'm on my way. Yeah. So because didn't see anything later that evening. We were we were following this old dirt road and it had to go to Chihuahua. And then we came across a river drainage and I was looking at a map and I could see on the topical relief map that it went down to Chihuahua. And we were on a plateau and right before we started down that plateau, a set of police lights came on off our to our right and I stopped and and Ramey said. You're in the lead. Beware. He said, if anything feels wrong, don't stop. And so we got to the bottom of the road. We crossed the bridge. And this guy that's a cop's trying to turn us to go upstream. Yeah. And I knew Chihuahua was downstream. Yeah. And Ramey said, if we'd have went there, then we'd never been found. They'd, they would have had all our bikes. Yeah. And But, um, you know, it's just the funny thing. At least thing, there was a probability of that. <laughs> the funny thing was, is that I got to the hospital at Chihuahua. I mean, I got to the hotel at Chihuahua and they wanted to take me to the hospital. I said, no, I've got a flight out in two days to an orthopedic surgeon that'll help me. And so they they took my boot off and, and it'd been 105 every day and, and I hadn't taken a shower for three days. And Kim came in and helped me take my boot off and that about made me die because- I can't imagine. Yeah. And so I got in a shower and then I laid down and, and uh, Kim propped my foot up for me and they came in the next morning and they said, are you riding? I said, I have to, we don't have anybody else. And it was great because somewhere I have a picture and I'll send it to you someday. I was on crutches. Kim was in a wheelchair and our other friend was on crutches too in the hotel. You know, it's come come adventure and get disabled. (laughs) They came in and they couldn't get my boot on. My foot was too swollen. So they they couldn't find any way to lube my foot up. So they went to the kitchen and they got Wesson oil and they covered my sock completely and I put on my foot. And uh, one guy jumped across my chest. Another guy was holding my legs and two guys crammed my boot on. And that hurt so damn bad. And they just said... We'll be back in 20 minutes to get you to shut the light off. <laughs> yeah. 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 Rode all the way home. What an adventure. To come out of the gate, you'd had the bike for a couple months and you went oh, right in, you went right into right into Copper Canyon. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this podcast, because I think it's it'll be really relevant to a lot of people's desires for travel, is you have found a great way of flying in and either renting vehicles or motorcycles or buying them in country. You purchased a vehicle in Australia. I'd love to talk about how you did that. What was the process? How difficult was it? Um, what did the vehicle cost? Yeah. Um, and, and then how did you end up at the other end of it? How, did you, were you able to at least break even or something close? My first rig I bought was in Columbia, but we can go back to that later. I bought an FJ43 down there. But the, in Australia, I went to rent a rig and um, when I got there and there were no rigs available and they tried to give me this Mazda something for a little yeah. four wheel drive car and it had ball tires on it. And, and my friend Paul said no. And so I took it back. They kept my deposit to $5,000. So I was talking to Paul and he said, you know, Randy, he said, let's just find you a good Land Cruiser. And I said, okay. And then I called you and I said, what do I look for? And you said, for you, I'd look for a 76 series V8 diesel 76. And we found one that had about 50,000 miles on it. I think I paid 35,000, 50,000 Australia for it, about 30. Sure. 
and it was only a couple of years old. It didn't have very many That's miles really on fair. It. And it had lockers in it already. So then like any wannabe, I took it to the ARB shop and started <laughs> pointing and picking. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it took them about a week to do all the stuff to put the lockers and everything in it for us. And at that point, I was married. Then Paul gave us his Wagoneer and we took off and went out the South Coast and uh, out, out towards Adelaide and went to the Great Ocean Road and Gorgeous. and saw the 12 Apostles. And then we went up into the Grampians and the Flinders. Yeah, the Flinders are, are incredible. The Flinders I ended up revisiting three times. Yeah, you know, incredible. I, every trip I'd go over. Did you ever go to the Parinchilla Hotel? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. I Well, I, I went there with my dad, so I just had this incredible yeah. memory of that. And, and my dad eating that you could buy this plate of food that had you know, crocodile and kangaroo yeah. on it and, and camel and all this other stuff. So, but you yeah, know, the funny memory, the funny story about Australia is, is 10 years before that happened, I pulled into the Lone Pine Cafe and that happened in 18 and yeah, 18 that happened because 10 years before that, I had met a name by the man by the name of Paul Raymond and his wife, Lee Mitchell, and they were at the Lone Pine Cafe. And I had been riding in Death Valley in 105, 110 degree heat all day. Sure. And I hadn't felt like eating, so I hadn't eaten anything all day. And I pulled into the Lone Pine Cafe on the corner there at five minutes to nine. And the girl says, I'm not, not serving you. It's too close to closing time. The only other people in there were Paul and Lee, and they were in the back, and they were here from Australia. They had went back to Roaring Thunder because Paul was a Vietnam vet, and they'd rented a Mustang convertible and driven all the way out <laughs> across the United States. <laughs> oh, cool. And Paul in the back says, F that, Sheila. You come sit with us. We haven't ordered. And so we struck up a great friendship. And, you know, that friendship carried forward with notes and stuff. And finally, Paul said, are you ready to come? You know, I can't keep, I'm not going to live that much longer. I really want to help you. And it was one of those things of keeping in contact with people and being honest about what you're able to do. Sure. Paul helped me build my rig and uh, I ended up spending seven weeks the first trip, brought it back to Melbourne. Uh, the second trip, I took my doctor who travels with me on my long distance trips overseas all the time. We traveled back up into the Grampians. And I remember we were in the Arcola Wilderness. The funny thing is, I forgot the first trip, you and I were both in the Arcola Wilderness and we were yeah. going to meet and we yeah, ended right. up being about five miles apart. That's it. It was crazy. We and just you lost. Were, you we were a day couldn't... early and I was a day early that's and my right. satellite phone wasn't working. Right. And We uh, tried. Uh, we tried. We made up for it last night. That's right. But you know, I, I looked at Mark because I had tried to climb Ayers Rock and the oldest item on my bucket list at that time was 48 years old. I had a second grade teacher read us a story about the man that climbed Ayers Rock to watch sunrise and I couldn't climb it. We got blown out every day up there. We couldn't climb. And then so Mark and I were sitting on the Arcola Wilderness, sitting there right at that. Old, there's a lodge there. It's not much of a lodge, but there's a lodge. There. Yep. And Mark looked at me and he said, can we go climb Ayers Rock? And I said, well, Mark, it's going to cause us to have about four or five 16-hour days. And he goes, I'm good with that. He said, you know, I'm good with that. And I said, okay, well, let's do it. And so we got there and the, we were there for three days. And the very last day we were there, we, we got to the gate at eight o'clock. So they'd let us climb. We got about halfway up and they started yelling us to come down. I looked at Mark and said, I'm not coming down. I'm going. And the problem was is that Four years before that, I crushed both feet really bad and I could hardly walk. I was hobbling and I crawled on my hands and my knees most of the way to the top. And and I remember getting up there and that was the oldest bucket list item I ever had. And at that time, it had been on my list for 50 years. Wow. And I realized it was time to start a new bucket list. <laughs> and you have and you've yeah. the things that you've experienced is incredible. Well, let's talk a little bit about that accident. So you were on your motorcycle yeah. and you had a pretty horrific accident. Well, I was October 16th to 2016 and Simon and Lisa um, from To Ride the World and, and Terry Borden from Adventure Trio had always told me and Ramey had always been built in on my head that dreams are just dreams until you set a date. And at that point, 
I was riding down to the LA motorcycle show that I really enjoyed going to. And I was going to declare that I'm leaving Christmas Day to ride to the bottom of South America. And I was in the hills above uh, Redwood City, California. And um, I went in, uh, we were in the pastures up there and these gorgeous pastures, huge pastures overlooking the ocean. And I went around a really hard right-hand corner. I could see it was right-hand corner because the only place that had trees were the corners. And I went around this corner and we were going, I was probably going 35 and it was probably 35, 40 mile an hour corner. It's no big deal. I was taking it easy because it was just so beautiful. And my bike started to slide, started to come out from underneath me. So normally my instant response was to turn into it and power up. Well, when I powered up and got back straight, the bike just kept skating. Yeah. And it skated me right into about a 10 foot high rock wall, dirt wall. I don't know really what happened from then. The rider behind me told me that when I impacted the wall, it threw me into the road. The bike went up in the air and the bike came down on both my feet, smashed them bad. It it broke the fibulas, but it didn't. And my boots probably are all that saved me. I've always been a great believer in good gear. So we got my bike upright. I couldn't feel anything from the knees down. And I still remember, must have been in kind of in a daze because my friend helped me get back on my bike. We got it over to the side of the road where there's a little berm so I could get up on it. And he goes, "Which? what do you want to do? And I said, there's this charbroiled chicken place about five miles away. And I've been tasting that thing all day. I want to go eat eat a charbroiled chicken sandwich here. And I remember I pulled in and they helped me off the bike and helped me into the restaurant. And there's probably a hundred people on the patio overlooking the ocean watching us, just kind of staring at us. Yeah, sure. When I was sitting there eating lunch, I, I couldn't feel my feet anymore. They had to help me up, get in the bathroom. And I came out and the people were just aghast because I was getting back on my bike. And I remember before I put my helmet on, I turned around and said, don't worry, I'm not going to do any wheelies. But that's one of those points where I wish I'd had somebody a little bit stronger in my life because I don't remember the last hour getting back to Redwood City. I, yeah. I do not. I, I don't. So you probably rung your bell a bit too. Yeah, it did. And I had a bruise. I had at the time, Climate just came out with the Adventure Rally armor, the, the 3D armor, the yep. stuff from Germany. And I had a bruise from here to here yeah. through that arm. Across your chest, yeah. I, it would have broke my sternum and broke every rib. You know, I'd had a rib through a lung or a heart for sure from yeah. that. But I've never I've never met a person yet that um, wishes they had less gear on when they got hurt yeah, or, bat, sure. or cheaper gear on when they got hurt. That started a process of uh, how many years have you been recovering from? That happened in 2016. It took me two years to be able to feel my feet again when I walked. So I had to look at the ground when I walked and I still ran my logging company. Eventually, the only thing that was really bad was is I would get about 40% swelling on a long day, 25% normally. My feet would swell up, you know, every night. And I did know that. And which, you know, brings me to, I think, an important part of the conversation, because the last time that I, well, the time before last, when I saw you, when you came to Prescott. Yeah, Christmas we time. Were, yeah. yeah, we were having, I think, breakfast together, yeah. maybe, maybe lunch. I think it was breakfast. You know, I know that you had been working so hard to recover and, and I could just, I could see the pain that you were in and not only the physical pain, but the frustration because you're an adventurer, you're a traveler, you, your goal is to check off that, those bucket list items as you yeah. go around the world. And let's talk a little bit about what, what we talked about that morning. You suggested something that nobody else had ever suggested to me and that was fasting. Yeah. Um, I was worried about you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, and we've talked about that, but. I feared for you as my friend is that that yeah. this path that you were on, not only was it not a healthy one, it wasn't a long one. Well, that and two and a half years ago when I went through my divorce with Denise, I yep. that was I went into a dark hole that I didn't know if I was ever going to come out of. I, yep. I, when I when I got hurt, one of the doctors suggested um, testosterone replacement therapy, mm-hmm. and they put me on four hundred milligrams, which is a huge dose. But they said we need it to help heal your feet, so it put about seventy five pounds on me, and probably. 
a third of that was fat or half that was fat and mm -hmm. the rest of it was muscle. I've always been big, but I mean, I got big and I could never get it to come off. Yeah. I mean, I'd lose 20 pounds and then it'd come back. I'd lose yeah. 20 pounds, it'd come back. And it was so frustrating because I can't hike. You know, I, I can't go out and it's walk It's hard to be long. physical. Yeah, yeah it's sure. hard to be physical when you can't walk. You know, I just, I still remember our conversation from that morning and, and having tears in my eyes telling you, you know, that I really didn't see a resolution to this. I didn't see, because yeah. I'd had all kinds of surgeons try to help me and, you know, and tell me, you know, we can operate, but there's a 70% chance it'll be worse. Yeah. It gets any worse, I'm not going to be able to walk. And uh, and then you suggested that I start fasting That and I, I didn't really... I trust you and I love you and I and I know that you were going to give me the best input you could and you did. Yeah. And I have to tell people, look right in the camera and tell you, if you haven't tried fasting for joint pain and for inflammation, you got to do it. Five days fast. It was simple. After the second day, I wasn't hungry at all. Yeah, you hand, you handled it really well. Yeah. And and again, I mean, just as it's important to note in the podcast, but I'm you know I'm not a doctor and yeah. and I don't I don't play one on the internet, but I had had personally really good success with that um you know i just noticed my you know mental clarity and the ability i guess for me and i've told you this but once you fa and I, i've done a 10-day fast once you fast for five seven ten days you just realize that you don't actually need as much food as you oh, think you do it's all mental it's just all a mental game yeah. of feeling hungry and that you got to satiate yourself yeah. so when i got through a 10-day fast and it was just again people need to talk to their doctor these are things that you shouldn't take lightly but by the time i got done with a 10-day fast i thought this, you know all of this stuff that i tell myself about food is just garbage it's just yeah. totally foolishness because you know as long as you got some fat on your frame which i do and i had even more back then, uh, you're fine. Yeah. It's just not. And, and of course your doctor's got to tell you, you're going to be fine. But I was, my doctor said I was going to be fine. And, and I was, and then it changed my relationship with food. Yeah. And, and now I'm 60 pounds less than I was and yeah. 30, 40 pounds less than I was even a year and a half ago. Well, so. I remember when you went through a drastic change yeah. I remember the Scott Brady I meant was heavier. A yeah. lot heavier. And then all of a sudden you're, you're not swelth, but you're really looking good. Well, thank you. You're welcome. It changed. It, it already pre-programmed in my mind that when you talk to me about it, I'm already thinking that, you know, I watch this guy drop 40 pounds and keep it off for the last four or five years. Yeah, that's right. One of my friends said, you know, the richest man, if he could have everything in the world, what would he have? And I, I never guessed his health. And cause I've always taken for granted. I've always been a bull. I've always been able to power my way through anything in life. Um, no matter what it was mentally, physically, it didn't matter. And then I watched you and then I was blessed enough to have you come to me and say, I think I might have it some help for you. And you did the same thing Bill Quimby did for me with alcoholism. Um, you started me fasting and, uh, yeah, we touch, we touch base every single day. Yeah. So those that are listening, Randy, he'll send me the calories he consumed during the day. He'll give me a weight update a couple times a week. And it's super helpful for me too. It's helped me stay. Keeps on, us accountable. Yeah, yeah. It's helped me stay accountable. So just having that friend that you can trust, that you can share the things you're struggling with and that you want to be better at. Yeah. And it was just such a, a blessing because the next time that I saw you, you were upright and you were walking with authority that yeah. I hadn't seen you walk with in a long time. There was a couple of things I noticed is one is how much time I spent thinking about food. Yeah, sure. And two, how much time when I was driving, I'd say, oh, there's my favorite burrito place. I could go have a steak there. I could go. Yeah. And to realize when you told me when I was about three days into this, that any hunger you have now is mental because your calorie counts down, you're in ketosis. Yeah. 
you know, and then I remember on the sixth day I called you and said, okay, Scott, what can I eat? And I was expecting you to tell me celery. He said, you can have whatever the hell you want. Just keep it in the Lucid app so you know your calories and you yeah. know your carbohydrates a day. And, and it was simple. It's It's been simple. Yeah. It's, the challenge is it's often just too restrictive. Yeah. So there is one thing that we have to stri- restrict if we want to lose weight and that's yeah. calories. Yeah. Um, and there is a better way to do it. You can be really paying a lot of attention to your macros, but if you just start off with getting the number down, it's amazing how quickly it drops off. I've plateaued a couple of times. So I'm down about 35, probably be home down 40 pounds by the time yep. I get home. And it's the first time since I got hurt where I felt like I had somewhat control of my body and in my life before yeah. I felt out of control. Yeah. And that's not a good place to feel no, when you it's not. have a physical, you know, everything I've ever done my whole life is extremely physical, which is, you know, I, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was five foot eight, 160 pounds. Yeah. And, you know, no, I wasn't big, wasn't strong, wasn't muscular. And it's just that many years of hard, hard work that built that. But I felt like I'd lost control of it. You know, I was, you know, no different than when I got sober. I was having heart issues from cocaine and I was having my guts were coming apart because of the alcohol. The deal of carrying the extra weight and feeling like you're out of control is not good on your psyche. Yeah. Not at all. Oh, that makes sense. You know, it's... uh. It's the selfishness inside of me now when I put on pants that are two cents or I'm, I'm wearing a double XL shirt now instead of a triple, Yep. you know, and, and that I have, I know that no matter what happens, if I just stay the course, yep. things are going to happen. Just keep making the effort and staying the course. Good things happen when you do that. Yeah. And have somebody that you can be a partner in it and stay accountable. And we've done that for each other and it's yeah. made a, it's made a huge difference for me. Yeah. Too, and it's such it's so great for me to see you healthier and stronger yeah. each time we get we get together. Let's pivot back a little bit towards um, your travels because I think it's 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 an interesting one. You've done a bunch of trips down to Colombia with our mutual friend Micho and his wife Sada, yeah. um, wonderful human beings, it's the best. Yep, and uh, they run elephant, elephant expeditions. Moto. Yeah, elephant moto. They run it in Colombia and in Costa Rica, both. That's right, yeah. and yeah, Chris White runs the Costa Rican the operation yeah. in Costa Rica, which I travel with Chris uh, by motorcycle in, in South America yeah. too. That's one of the ways that you have explored these really remote areas and not have to ship your bike. You just yeah. you fly in. You get a guy like Micho, who's an amazing, amazing ride leader. And then you rent a motorcycle and you're off to the races. Yeah. I watched Micho, who is a trophy team level rider like Dragoo is, like Bill is. And we were coming out of, I can't remember the name of the huge canyon, Chickamauga Canyon, I think it is. And I was chasing those guys down the hill. And I'm, I'm pretty good, but I'm not anywhere near their level. And then Bill said, oh, we'll make it easier for you. And so him and Micho pop wheelies. And they're riding wheelies for about 10 miles all the way up that hill. And I'm still struggling to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're amazing riders yeah. for sure. Yeah, the, the bridges that I was, I was worried about crossing, Micho was oh. crossing it on the rear wheel. It's yeah. just amazing. Well, the funny thing is, is that there, you know, you're there in your 1200, you got all your gear on. You're going across these old railroad bridges that are... They're sketchy. They're sketchy. They're... <laughs> period. You know, they're... They're railroad tracks. So the railroad tracks are about five or six inches apart on the edges. And then yeah. some of them are filled with dirt and some yeah. of them are filled with, and then some of them have nothing. On one of my trips, I've ridden in Columbia like seven times now on one of my trips, six or six times. On one of my trips down there, we had a girl that, that Bill was, I was leading and then Bill was said, I need you to ride to her right side because she can't see very well. And I'll ride to her left side because it was getting dark. Yeah. And we were in jungle. Is I mean, that when was, she went into the water? Yeah. 
Yeah, Bill told that whole story on the oh, podcast. God, it was unbelievable. I, was, I didn't know you were there. I was right behind her. I was riding on the right That's side terrifying. of her. And, and she was told to, you know, don't go stop at the bridge, let Bill or I check it out. And I stopped. She shot across the bridge like a rocket. And I was right there with Bill and he went in. Luckily, my f- friend Mark Hansen was my doctor. He's, I used to always give him a nice bonus every year for his doctor work to, yeah, sure. to go with me so he could afford to go on trips with me. And he got her out. And But the funny thing was, is that it was nothing funny about it. There's two things I learned out of that is her bike went off and wedged in a, in a girder. Yeah. And she went down through a hole like this big around. And she, yeah. that was all she could do to fit through that. The blessing was that she landed in the only river that was a mud river that we'd crossed all day. Everything mm-hmm. else we'd crossed would have been, you know, 150 foot high bridges with no guardrails and yep. sketchy. And she went, got ejected down through there. And by the grace of God, there was a little kid on a Honda about 10 years old coming at her. He saw it. He ran over into the pasture, ran underneath the bridge and found her. Because Bill, it was pitch black. Bill had ran over the end of the bridge to the side she went off on, went to step off and went off about a 15 foot cliff. And he oh, was wow. grabbing limbs and brush and the little kids screaming, I found her, I found her. But she was face down in the water with her visor shut, completely yeah. full of water. Yeah. And they brought her back up. And I mean, she had contusions on her arms that were like this. I mean, it was yeah. horrible. I thought for sure she had broken everything and she hadn't. What a miracle. But Mark got her there and got her head up so because he was thinking she was going to get go into, um, start having either a stroke or going into shock. Yeah. Amazing. I remember this, the somberness that night in the hotel yeah. that we stayed at. When you know someone was that close. Yeah. Nobody's even talking to each other. Everybody's walking around the hotel. Normally we were jolly and laughing and yep. giving each other a hard time about the day, you know. But uh, no, I've had three amazing adventures with Bill down there. And yeah. it's and Micho, Micho and Sada are just two of the best first human cl- beings. Yeah, 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 two of the best human beings you'll ever meet. I'm sitting here looking at your picture with him. With Mike yeah, and that's right. Yeah, those, Columbia, are the, those yeah. are the photos right behind us. And then you, you recently did a big trip to Africa. Yeah. And talk a little bit about where you traveled there. And what was the highlights for you? 2020. One, Gary and Debbie, who had stayed at my ranch in Bend with me, they're from Kenya. Gary called me and he said, hey, I know you can't go back to Australia because I had three, three eight-week trips over there. And so in 2021, Gary called me and said, hey, we're going to take our overland truck. And they're simply overland. If, if you love beautiful pictures, Debbie takes some of the most beautiful pictures you'll ever see and does some beautiful writing. And they travel all the time at Simply Overland. They're on Instagram. He said, hey, why don't you come over? We'll, we'll rent you a Land Cruiser. We'll find you a Land Cruiser to rent. And I went and rented one from, I um, can't remember the name of the company Probably now. Bushlore or one of those. Bushlore. Yeah, yeah, it was Bushlore. And I rented a brand new brand new pickup with a rooftop tent on Right it. on. Brand fun. new. So it fun. 500 miles on it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yep. Break it in properly. I remember when I opened the hood up and it was a six-cylinder diesel and there was like fuel line on this side and, and a shutoff line on a wire on this side. I could have stood. They're as simple as they get. They don't even have a turbo. No. They're as simple as they get. They're just as simple as they get. And so we left Johannesburg and we went straight to Botswana because we had to go fast because they were still having COVID testing and we had to get across Botswana and into Botswana in the next two days. Oh, gotcha. So we got into Botswana and then we kind of slowed down a little bit and then we went into the Chobe River. Incredible. So beautiful there. I remember Gary's got pictures of me that he sent me, and I have some pictures too. The first two elephants I ever saw were along the highway, and they'd taken a lid off the box of a pipeline, and they were drinking out of it. <laughs> you know, and I was just, Duh. yeah. You know, and they're here, so huge. And here I am a week later, and we're in the upper end of the Chobe and the Marimi, and I'm driving through a herd of 500 of them. Yeah. And Debbie has some phenomenal pictures of me driving in the Land Cruiser and all the elephants around us. You know, unbelievable. Um, 
we went out to Kubu Island on the big lake out there. Yeah. And that was my first encounter with hyenas. They took my iced tea bottle, drug it <laughs> off and ate it. So then a couple nights later, we were at the third bridge in Chobe, yeah, which is that's um, the real out of mound, deal. which is that's just real deal. breathtaking. And we were wall camping there. And I was sitting by the fire the first night and Gary and Debbie were on the other side of the fire in their big overland truck. And I was sitting, leaning up against my truck in a chair with my headlamp on reading. And all of a sudden I see movement to the left and I look over and it's a big cat and he walks right between me and the fire. <laughs> and he got just on the edge of camp and I said, Gary, <laughs> Gary came out and said, what? I said, a big cat just walked through. He goes, you got your torch? And I said, yeah. And he's checking the footprints. He goes, oh, looks kind of like a leopard. <laughs> and he walks out in the brush, <laughs> in the brush with a flashlight. Oh yeah, there he is about 20 feet away from me. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I hadn't heard that story. Boy. <laughs> so that night they thought it would be funny. They took and put all the garbage up on the top of my roof rack next to my tent on the land cruiser. <laughs> One o'clock in the morning, I feel a truck shake. And then something comes over and lays against my tent on me and it's eating the garbage. It's <laughs> chomping on the plastic bottles. It was a brown hyena. Oh, jeez. And those things are just- They're huge. They're huge. And he's yeah. leaning on me and I'm afraid to move. <laughs> of course. I, I, God, I'll pee my pants if I have to. I'm not going to move. And so, you know, about 20 minutes later, he gets off on the ground and he's down there chewing a bottle. And Gary comes out to take a pee and he looks at me and he goes, what's up? And I said, <laughs> and he goes, he comes out of there in his underwear and shoes on, screaming at this hyena to get the hell out of here. <laughs> so the next night we put the- Yeah, South Africans are another, they're, they're their own breed. Yeah. yeah. And the next night we put the garbage on top of their truck, <laughs> but that damn same hyena came in and he stole our plastic wash tub. And we've got video pictures of him on the game trail cameras that night. Wow. But- on third bridge out of mound, north of mound there, we ran into the hippos. Yeah. A lot of hippos on the river there. They are huge. And they're, you know, you don't F with the hippos. That's the yeah. number one. Gary pulled me aside and he looked me in the eyes and he said, you do not mess with the hippos. Yeah. Don't tease them. Don't even go near them. Yeah. They and, kill more tourists than any of the other yeah. animals there and, in Africa. But they, uh, you know, if anybody- Well, we, other than a mosquito. We went mosquito to, kills them you know, the, the thing I wanted to tell you was, is that one of the goals on this trip when Gary asked me, he said, I want to go to the skeleton coast in Namibia and in the Namib Desert. And he said, why? And I said, because the first Overland Journal article I ever read when I found an Overland Journal magazine somewhere was about your trip coming down the Skeleton Coast. Oh, yeah. And it was Bruce Dorn that wrote that. Yeah. And you just saw Bruce again today. Yeah, I saw Bruce. I didn't know that, that Bruce had written that. He but, wrote that story. But I remember your pictures in the shipwrecks, yep. and I thought, God, I've got to go to that place. It was incredible. So we went there. We kind of bypassed the dunes in the south, and we went there, stayed two or three days, and then Gary took me into the Namib Desert. And we didn't see another human being for four days. We didn't see tire tracks. We yeah. saw one animal close to the coast. And the rest of the time, it was just nothingness. And when they say it's the oldest desert in the world, I kind of believe them because all the rocks are, there's nothing sharp. Everything's rounded <laughs> yeah. off. But, you know, to move forward, we went up to the Caprivi Strip up on the northern end of Namibia. Uh, Gary said, do you want to go, how would you like to go whitewater rafting in Angola? And I looked at him and went, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> I'm game. Gary was, I came back that night and I said, uh, how'd we do? And he said, well, you have your hands and your feet. So it was a pretty good trip. But then we went out to Caprivi Strip and we stayed, you know, all along the Caprivi Strip and then into Zimbabwe. And then, yeah, you know, I, I ended up my trip at Victoria Falls and then I flew out of Victoria Falls to come home. Incredible. Yeah, I was so I was so glad you were able to have that experience. You know, one of the things that that I love to ask in the podcast, and it's totally a, a selfish personal question, but uh, let's talk about some of your favorite books okay. that you've read. In my youth, Huck Finn was read to me by my second grade teacher, and I had just moved out to a, to our farm, and I had seven eight hundred acres 
of timber that was unexplored. It was old growth, big creeks that went all the way down the Willamette River, 10 miles away. And I spent every day out there. I started my first business, crawdad fishing. And I sold crawdads to a guy that drove up and down the road. The other book that really touched me on a level I wasn't, well, I didn't expect anything at, at nine years old to read was the school teacher read us Huck Finn. Yeah. And being a child growing up in Oregon, not in a big city, um, you don't have any race, differences in races. Everybody's yeah. the same. And to read Huck Finn and to learn about humanity, a yeah. little bit about humanity, it it stayed with me the rest of my life. Yeah. And then in later life, then she read us that book, Where the Red Fern Grows. Yeah. And that book taught me to be a gentle soul to people and to animals. It yeah. taught me what love is. You know, that book really is a story about love more than anything else. Wilson Rawls and Where the Red Fern Grows. It was written in the 30s, I think, and it's still a must read today for young people. When I bought my first 1200 BMW, I was... The day I bought it, they said, you might want to come back, Madeline and Scott Russell from Western Oregon BMW. And I said, why? They said, there's a guy that's going to talk here tonight. I said, about what? And they go, just come. And it was Ted Simons. Yeah. And of course, I bought Jupiter Travel that night. That fired my imagination. That's an incredible book. Yeah, incredible. And then my bike came in three weeks later because they were going to have to order it from Europe because I wanted some special stuff on it. And my bike came in and they called me. And uh, one, my pastor sent me a picture of him sitting on my brand new bike. The man that had put me on his <laughs> bike. The man that put me on his bike. And, yeah. Did he but bring your bike back after three days? <laughs> he just sent me pictures of it. And, but that night, there was a couple there that talked named Simon and Lisa Thomas is from the round to ride the world. Yeah. And listening to them talk about their adventure at that time, it had been about eight years they'd been riding. But for the, to listen to them talk about their adventure they'd been on. And then at the end of it, I asked Simon, I said, so how much does it cost? Yeah. He said, well, you can budget for about $30 a day. If you want to stay in hotels, about $50 a day. And instantly I'm doing the math saying, I got enough in retirement right now. I can just leave. And then, you know, a week, two weeks later after that, I went to Copper Canyon. So yeah. it, it kind of, those books, you gave me a book about five years ago was Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. Yeah. yeah. Randolph Fine's book. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Incredible is, book. It, it is an incredible book. Um, Talk about a life well lived. That guy. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, One Man Caravan. Another Which I one. think is one of the top two or three motorcycle books ever written. Yeah. If you haven't read that book, read it. It's, and it was so early in motorcycle travel. It's just incredible that they got any place at all. It goes all the way across modern day Iran and yeah. Africa. Yeah. I mean, modern day Iran and Egypt with nothing but British expeditionary forces maps, just That's little right. dots. That's right. And he tells a story in the book about getting into villages and they say, well, does the road go into the next valley? Yeah, but don't go there because people don't come back. Yeah. Well, do you know anybody that's went there? No, yeah. <laughs> but don't go there because you won't come back. And it was pretty crazy. But the book that, that you gave me at Christmas time to listen to on the way home and introduced me to audiobooks, I'd never yeah. knew what an audiobook really was, never listened to them at all. Uh, I tend to be kind of old school about stuff. And the comfort crisis yeah. completely changed how Powerful. I looked at my relationship with my body and how I looked at my diet and how I looked at my body. And it wasn't a book of know-it-alls preaching to you. The comfort crisis is 15 hours long and it took me 24 hours to listen to it because I kept replaying it. Did they just say that? Yeah. You know, I've never heard anybody say this kind of stuff before and it all makes sense, you know, about why we go into ketosis when we were hunter gatherers and we would run out of food and we would die. Yeah. But then your body would go into ketosis because yeah. you were gording everything you could get because yeah. you didn't know when you were going to eat again. And, and there are studies that they did with the, you know, I never heard of it before, anthropologist nutritionists going yeah, back sure. and studying ancient tribes and ancient people, yeah. you know. And ancient cultures to see and how, how they, long they would walk and run yeah, in a day. Yeah. You know, they'd walk 20, 
25 miles a day. Yeah. It's like incredible. When, it's like when Sterling Norling did the book, the the movie on the people of Copper Canyon. Yeah, that's run a down. really good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great book. I, Comfort Crisis. Um, I've recommended it to many of my friends because it's, it's a pretty powerful it, it, read. It was life-changing for me. And between that and fasting, it all, everything started to make sense that I don't have to play the cards I'm dealt. I can redeal. Yeah, sure. And, and you and, have. And I have. And, and thank started. you. When I was in the leadership school about 15 years ago, I had, it's been 18 years now, but it was something pretty traumatic. I lost my wife to a drug overdose. She'd been sober when we got married about four years. I had about 10 years and she uh, got an overdose, fried her brain. Yeah. Her parents are very wealthy. They kept her alive. She just died here a couple of years ago, but she was a vegetable and yeah. um, I had to get some help. 10 years later, I still wouldn't let anybody get even close to me. And I, you know, you and I have talked about it a lot about getting help. Yeah. You know, don't be afraid to get help. You only got one chance. You only got one life. And every day you spend either struggling or not living life to the fullest is one more day you're never going to get back. Yeah. And we don't know how many of them we have. No. So it, it, every day might be the last. I've always told people, I wish I knew when I was going to die because I know if I could quit working now and just go spend <laughs> the rest of my life, I maybe could have did that 10 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, to live each day to the fullest. Yeah. And, and now through your help and also through, you know, getting the help I needed, it took three years of tough work to be able to do that, yeah. to be able to well, love myself basically is what it came down to. Yeah. We got to start with that. Cause I could always see everything that was else. wrong with me. I could never see anything right with me. I could always, yeah. And that's just stuff that's born in our head from our childhood that we're told we're nobody. And that's what we believe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a hell of a journey. And, uh, I had a ranch down here that that I was starting to build and I showed it to you about three years ago, four years ago. And then I went through a divorce and decided it was better if I sold it. I have a beautiful cattle ranch out of Bend, Oregon, and I know you've been to it and it's, it's heaven. Yeah. Beautiful place. And I wish I, you know, I come down here and I just think to myself, this is where you belong. <laughs> you know, there's Bend is an incredible place. Prescott's an incredible place. And, and, and home is really where we make it as travelers. And you've been able to do that. You've been able to see the world. It's just been an incredible thing for me to watch you progress as a traveler. And it's just, I think that this conversation is so important. And I'm so grateful, Randy, that you've been so open with our audience. And you have been with me for many years is that we all struggle. I lost my mom last year. And I needed to go to therapy because well, it was so, it was such a heartbreaking, heart ripping out of your chest kind of experience. I remember have, having like, those daily conversations with you yeah. for the better part of two or three months. That's right. You know, every and day. You know, there's just, we don't, we can't prepare ourselves for those things, no. but we do need help to get through them. Uh, there's no such thing as that you're strong enough and none of us are strong enough. We all have heartache and we all have things that we need help with. And, and I'm just so proud of you for the things in your life that you've done to take care of yourself and to learn to love yourself and to get the help that you needed. And that's really why I wanted to have you on today is to remind all of our audience that we do need that. And that ant adventure can be such a motivator for yeah. life too. And it yeah. can fill us with so much joy and love and connection and friendships that we would have never imagined having. And confidence in ourselves. That's right. And we can continue to have those experiences and to gain confidence in ourselves. Randy, let's let's talk again about how people, because we're getting close to time here, let's talk about how people get a hold of you or follow you on Instagram, can see yeah. more of your adventures. I'm PVT Mule, Private Mule. 
on Instagram. Nick, nickname yeah. from the Marine Corps. There you go. Being and I th- you're also on, I think, Facebook and no, some other. I got, no, kick, I got kicked off Facebook as, as <laughs> well, security risk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. I, I, I'm not on there very I'm, often. I'm either. on Instagram only. Yeah. And, uh, so that's how people can follow you. Yeah. And my my phone number, I'm not afraid to give it out. I give it out to a lot of people that are in recovery and need help. And it's 503-780-3828. And you know, most people that call me say, do I have a problem? And there's one simple thing I always tell them, just don't drink for 30 days. Just don't smoke dope for 30 days. Don't use drugs for 30 days. If you can't do it, you maybe ought to get some help. But I'm never here to tell anybody that you're this or you're that. That's not my place in life. Yeah. They've got to come to it on their own. Well, they've had people tell them for yeah. a long time. They yeah. need to come to it on their own. We tend to beat ourselves up so bad that we, we start to look at ourselves like other people think we are. And then yeah. that sets our destiny. Yeah. And that's who we become. Yeah. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because they become your destiny. Yeah. And, you know, we don't, it's not one bad turn or one bad episode that gets us where we're going in life. But like with abuse, um, and, you know, the thing is, is I've learned about abuse is from doing four steps in Alcoholics Anonymous with men. About 95% of men that have alcoholism problems, it comes from either physical abuse or sexual abuse. And you can pin it down to the day it started. Yeah. For me, it started at 12 years old. Sure. You don't have to live the story you're living now. You have a chance to start over. Yeah. And that's the beauty of this life. Yeah. You can pick your own ending. You can't pick your starting. You can't pick your your friends. You had to stay with your family. But in the second half of our lives, we have a chance to make whatever story we want when we're done. Yeah. You know, and, and the beauty of it is you don't have to know the answers. Yeah. Beauty of it is, is just do the right thing every day and keep doing the right thing. You don't have to, if, and if you get set back for a day, it's like you've told me, you know, I get upset because I wasn't losing, you know, half a pound or three quarters of a pound every day. We all reach plateaus. Just keep doing the same thing and good things will happen. And they have. And they really have. Yeah. Well, and having you on this podcast has been a good thing, Randy. And I appreciate you, brother. Very humbled to be asked because when I look through your list of people, those are all people that are heroes in my life that I look up to. Yeah, they're my heroes too. Yeah. And you're the luckiest man in the world. (laughs) I am because I get to sit down with them all. Yeah. Yeah. And well, uh, Randy, thank you. Thank you again. Yes, Scott. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to. And I'm so glad we got to get out and go camping together. Too. <laughs> that was so, that was awesome. We'll have to plan the next one. It was awesome chasing me, Matt's Range Rover on a one lane road with brush scraping on both sides. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, very good, Randy. Well, right, thank Scott. you so much, my friend. And thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.